With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Hello and welcome to Aussies Only, your podcast on the First Serve Network, diving deep into the world of Australian tennis. It is your host, Jed Zetzer, with you today. And we've got a mega edition of the show. I'm joined by Nathan Healy, and we're going to dive deep into Nathan's journey from becoming a pro player to becoming a pro coach on the tour to founding Play Awake. Well, I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. We're going to dive straight into Nathan's journey. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us on Aussies Only. Yeah, no worries, Jed. It's great great to uh, meet you via Zoom. And uh, yeah, glad we could connect. Not, not easy with the time zones. <laughs> it's not. It's not. Well, we'll get into, you know, the fact that you're living in America at the moment shortly. But before we do, I, I want to sort of start off with your life before we get into your tennis. Born on the Central Coast, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? Uh, sure, yeah. Central Coast, one hour north of Sydney. Uh, basically grew up at a tennis club with 23 courts, uh, running around in nappies. And uh, yeah, my, my grandparents ran the centre and then followed by my parents. And yeah, I was in the family for like 23 years. And uh, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, I uh, you know full of full of fun around the courts. Uh, you know, very much sporting family. Uh, you know, with te- obviously tennis, but soccer and athletics, and and uh, yeah, I guess um, I have two brothers uh, who are also very very keen tennis players. Um, I guess I was the one that was. Uh, a little bit more determined to follow it through and go through the the hard yards. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, took off in, you know, in, a, in Australian touring teams at age 14 and turned pro at 17 and, uh, yeah, and then was on, on tour for 12 years. And, yeah, so it's quite a, uh, yeah, quite a journey. So you were born basically into the world of tennis. It sort of it, it came to you very early. Do you remember the first time you picked up a, a racket or was that just were you born with a racket in your hand? Uh, I was actually a little later than most professional players. I, uh, I was, you know, like I said, I was involved in soccer and, you know, and athletics, but it was really nine, nine years of age uh, that, that uh, a student of my father's, so my dad was coaching at the club, uh, he put a racket in my hand and I, I, I began hitting against a wall and I had a blast and, I, and that's when I said to dad, hey, I'd like to give this a go. And uh, he was like, all right, you know, because he, he never pushed myself or my brothers into it. Uh, he was waiting for us to, you know, be bitten by the bug. And, yeah, that happened for me at nine. And, yeah, we uh, – so then it was obviously hours and hours of, of extra time on the court for him. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, – yeah, that's when it took off. So nine, as you mentioned, it is a little bit later than probably most who end up becoming pro. When did you first realise that you were actually better than just the average kid? And when did you first sort of think, all right, actually, I want to become a pro? Uh, I guess it was under 12s. I remember going to the Canberra Nationals and I was chosen in the New South Wales State team. Uh, So there were three of us chosen in that team. Uh, I made the round of 16 there uh, and then and New South Wales actually won the tour, uh, the uh, team event. Uh, so, yeah, it was nationals first, the tournament first, and then the team event followed. 
and it was it was there that I guess I was touched with you know the the feelings of you know well the first feelings of winning at winning a state title uh and then yeah I, I, I it felt great and I yeah it, it was a natural fit with with the family and uh you know they were all excited by it so I, I figured why not follow this through yeah that's awesome and what was your relationship like with tennis as a junior? You know, was it was it like you loved the sport and you just wanted to play as much as possible or was it that you were really good at it um, and I guess that was the reason you were playing? Uh, I guess it was a bit of both. Uh, I was good at it and I was also just, just loving it. Uh, but I had that determination to just train my butt off. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, run through brick walls. I'd always come off the court all bloodied up and I'd be diving all over the place and, you know, on clay courts covered in clay. And yeah, I, I definitely had the, the work ethic uh, and, yeah, was uh, willing to go that extra mile. For so, sure, yeah. for sure. Um, and just sort of fast-forwarding a couple of years, um, 2006 was the year that, you know, I looked at your career and that stood out to me um, on paper. That was quite a number of years into your career. Can you tell us a little bit about, and we will touch on that year, but can you tell us a little bit about the first couple of years in your career um, and what led to you eventually cracking the top 200 and winning a couple rounds at the Australian Open? Uh, well, uh I, I actually had some knee injuries towards the end of my junior career and uh, it, it was a struggle to really um, attack the singles court. It was, a, it was a lot easier to be on the doubles court um, for, for the knees so they, could, yeah, they were able to handle doubles. Obviously, it's not as physical. Uh, and I ended up doing really well quite quickly. And so my ranking shot up. I started making money. And uh, it was with actually Paul Hanley, uh, who he went on to top 10 in the world. Uh, but each year we were halving our ranking. So it was like 800, 400, 200, 100. And, you know, and eventually, well, it was, it was probably quicker than that. But it was, it was, it was uh, a pretty quick trajectory to, to winning Sydney with him uh, and, and reaching uh, like 55 in the world. And, um, yeah, so... When it was, it was, uh, pro, I think it was 2000, uh, what was I, 2004? I was, so I was 24 when the ATP changed the rules and they allowed singles players to use their rankings as, as doubles rankings. So in that year, that the cutoffs became really challenging. Uh, and, and I was just missing cuts. And it was it got a little bit frustrating. Uh, Paul went off and played a little bit with Wayne Arthur's, and his ranking jumped ahead of mine. And he was in some of the bigger events where I was just missing out. So I decided at 24 uh, to have a run at singles, uh, and that meant starting again from scratch. <laughs> so uh, yeah, back to the the futures, and uh, got those through those relatively quickly up into challenges. Uh, and then, you know, my wife would like to say she was the reason, you know, I made third round of that Australian Open in 2006. Uh, and yes, sure, she, she had a bit to do with it. Maybe I, uh, you know, became a little bit more stable mentally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I just started to put the game together a little bit more. I still say now that I didn't, really didn't know how to play the game. Uh, Looking back, I, I, you know, I would have done things a little bit differently, uh, but it was a, uh, yeah, I was physically was in amazing shape by then, um, and yeah, I, yeah, was confident uh, coming out of uh, Sydney International. I had a win uh, um, over. I'm blanking on his name, but we can look that up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I played a good match against James Blake in Sydney, and then went went to Melbourne and, uh, yeah, beat uh, the it Italian player, Filippo uh, Volandri. He was 26 in the world. And then um, and then uh, Amir Delic and then lost lost a tight match to Nikolai Davidenko. 
which was is one of my favourite memories from the tour for sure. Yeah, so I was going to say that was a really tight match with Davidenko. Um, I think it was 7-5 in the fourth. So I was, I was looking at, yeah, the trajectory it was a lot of doubles. And your doubles ranking, as you mentioned, it, it skyrocketed quite quickly to inside the top 60. And, you know, winning three titles with, I think it was two with Paul and one with Justin Gimmelstob. An incredible doubles career to go up that quickly. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, to switch over to the singles court and give it a crack as well. How difficult was it after reaching the third round of the Australian Open? I'm sure there was a lot of expectation that was put on your shoulders. How how difficult was that to actually play with? Because I'm sure before that Australian Open campaign, there wasn't that expectation. Uh, yeah, that's 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 true. So after the Australian Open, I went to Bernie Challenger and I won that tournament. Uh, and which was a great turnaround and another shot of confidence for, for the year ahead. Uh, but then I went to the States and just got a little bit lost. I, I feel like being in the Australian environment is always a great place for, for Australia players to start the year. Uh, you know, you're used to the climate, you, you know, you have the fans and, and I really fed off, fed off that environment. Uh, and then going to a challenger and a cold climate indoors, just, you know, it's, I, there was a string of tournaments that were um, just so different. And, uh, yeah, so I lost a few first rounds. Then I, I struggled with a couple of injuries. And all of a sudden that, that confidence that was, you know, really uh, born at the start of the year which dissipated. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was challenging to, to find, find the flow again. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I got down to, I'm not sure of the exact timeline, but, uh, yeah, got down to you know, one, 158. Uh, but, yeah, just just was couldn't couldn't find that flow again. Yeah, it is, it is very difficult, I'm sure, you know, playing in front of a, a home crowd and then sort of going on to the Challenger Tour overseas and playing in front of a small crowd. And as you mentioned, it's cold, it's indoors, it's basically the complete opposite conditions. Do you feel, though, that you having gone through those experiences has helped you become a better coach post your playing career? Obviously, you went into coaching, which we'll get onto in a sec, but has that helped you in your coaching career? Uh, without a doubt. You know, I always, when I do reflect on my career as a player, I feel like I left a few stones unturned. Uh, as I say to the players that I work with, I, I, if I did it differently, I'd reach out to mentors. Uh, I'd really seek seek advice of players and uh, that had been there before. Uh, and I just I really didn't reach out for the assistance that that was available if I if I actually looked. Um, and yeah, I, and with that, I think I would have been able to construct points a little better. Uh, and and yeah, just find a, yeah a deeper understanding of the game. Um, and I guess that's what I can talk about with coaching is that once I put the coach's hat on, I actually for sure became a better player. And, uh, yeah, that's what I encourage a lot of the kids that I work with is to actually coach, coach each other. Um, and, yeah, you, you start to see the court differently for sure. We've spoken about that run, that famous run at the 2006 Australian Open, but your career was full of other memories as well. And I want to touch on one the world team tennis, you competed in that tournament and you played alongside some of the biggest names in the history of the game. Do you mind sort of diving into that journey and talking to us a bit about who were some of the names that you played with and against and just how was that experience overall? Yeah, no, it's an incre incredible experience, the world team tennis. It's uh, very rare that we get a chance to be, uh, you know, in a team and especially with uh, women players. So it's a mixed team event with two men and two women on each team. Uh, some team, teams have a few extras uh, as subs, uh, but generally, yeah, you have four players. And, yeah, I got to play with uh, against Boris Becker, David Wheaton, uh, Serena Williams. I played against Serena. I was playing with Venus Williams against Serena, uh, and Justin, wow. Justin Gimblestob. Uh, and, yeah, with some of my favourite memories, though, with John McEnroe. 
Uh, he was making fun of my ball toss. I'd sort of start to lose the ball toss occasionally and he'd turn <laughs> to the crowd and make a big scene about it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience to play against him in singles, also in doubles. Uh, I played with Bjorn Borg against uh, him and I can't remember the other player he was playing with, but I remember after the match sitting in the player lounge with Borg and McEnroe and, and just thinking, wow, this is a special moment that a lot of people would, uh, would kill for. Uh, so yeah, those, those memories stick with me. Um, yeah, that's, that's for sure. And uh, also playing with Martina Navratilova. Um, yeah, they're, they're uh, yeah, she's an amazing woman. And Billie Jean King was running the league, you know, she was the one that created it. So she, she was uh, she owned the team that I was on within with the Philadelphia Freedoms, and uh, yeah, it's it's very popular over here in the states. Yeah, it's a it sounds it sounds incredible. Um, the whole concept, and just sort of having the opportunity to mix with some of those people, um, I guess behind the scenes, like just in the player locker rooms in the area. How was it? And and is there any sort of memory? that may stand out to you? I mean, it's it's difficult to remember these sort of things, but anything that might stand out that you remember that happened behind the scenes, like if any of these guys were, you know, funny in particular or made some I, outlandish calls? <laughs> I actually, oh, another one, another, well, one of my favourite memories was, was playing with Andre Agassi. That was wow. awesome. You know, and just witnessing him return serve and the way he locked his eyes on the ball, um, yeah, he just, uh, he, yeah, his his eyes were just so big and just glued to that ball. So, uh, you know, I learned a lot there. Uh, he's just good energy on the bench as well. Uh, and yeah, who else? I, I guess traveling with Venus, Venus Williams, very humble. Uh, traveled with the team um, on the commercial planes where she could have obviously flown prior, uh, but she also had her dog with her. Um, yeah, so that memory sticks out as as well. Martina Navratilova, she was she had a quirk with the uh, bag tags. She needed all the tags off the bags immediately uh, after we landed in in one of the That's cities. Brilliant. Uh, as well as she needed her Evian water. <laughs> that is so awesome. I thought that was funny. She ordered that. She, that, that. So that had to be sitting in her room when she arrived at the hotel. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I guess all players, you know, have have some kind of quirk or uh, OCD. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Did you, in your playing days, and even now, I mean, when you're out on the court, do you have any little quirks or superstitions that you, that you go by? Um, I mean, I don't like to step on lines. I, 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 I sort of take note of that. Yeah. Um, nothing really that's – except my rackets, I guess, they needed to be, you know, identical uh, weights and balances. Um, yeah, I could feel the racket if it was a, if it was a pound out here and there, uh, as, well as, as well as string tension. I could feel that. So yeah, I was a little pedantic about the rackets. Um, but, yeah, but other than that, um yeah there's there's nothing else that sticks out for me um yeah there was a player that I did play at Wimbledon uh Kenneth Carlson uh where where I was told before the match as he warms up his serve he has to serve on the juice side so he makes sure he gets to the net to warm up his volleys first so then his opponent's second and then he he, yeah, it's just one of his, you know, his, his superstitions. So I actually got to the net second. He beat me to the net. So I, after I finished volleying, I went quickly back to the baseline and all of a sudden a ball came straight past my head. Um, so, yeah, that stood out with Kenneth um, as well as he, he looks at his target. So oh, I, I don't know whether, yeah, well, I guess he's not going to hear he's retired now. But, he, uh, yeah, he, he looked at where he was serving. So... You know, for all young players really? out there, keep an eye on the, uh, you know, the, the players' eyes as they're, uh, you know, stepping up to serve. You might get a hint on where they're going. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. That's so interesting. Um, you know, as you mentioned, every player and every person has their specific, you know, quirk, and that's that's a really interesting one that I've never heard of. Now, Nathan, you played against arguably the greatest player of all time 
uh, as a junior, you came up against Roger Federer and you got the win. You're 1-0 against, against the Swiss maestro. Um, can, you, can you tell us a bit about that whole experience? I mean, you were, you were younger. It, was, it must be difficult to remember, but does anything sort of stand out from that time playing against Roger as a junior? And could you have possibly known back then that, wow, this kid's going to be good? <laughs> well, I did, yeah, I, this is one memory that is firmly etched in my mind. Uh, a lot of pro players dismiss this uh, because it didn't happen in, you know, in seniors. But, uh, yeah, as a junior, it happened in, uh, in Davos, Switzerland. Uh, I was travelling with a touring team. I was with Darren Cahill. He was the coach. Uh, and a good mate of his was coaching Roger at the time, uh, Peter Carter. And, uh, yeah, I can picture the court. I can picture I can picture the match and yeah I came away with a win six four in the third and uh, yeah one and zero against him is is quite special um, you know Peter had, you know he did a great job with his strokes he did he did look like he had had you know the technique to to go on and do something great in the sport but to do what he's done no I couldn't you know couldn't pick it back then. Uh, otherwise, I guess I would have been, you know, also in the mix to do something like he's Absolutely. done. But, uh, yeah, that was that was a special trip. I love Switzerland. It's a gorgeous place. And, uh, you know, in the Swiss Alps of, and Davos, it's, uh, yeah, quite. I think the junior tournament's still running there. Um, but, yeah, it was it was great time. Leighton Hewitt was on the trip with us as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how he did in that event, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, playing against Rog, it was it's special, and he remembers it. He has a, he has great memory of all the matches he plays. So um, yeah, it's it, it's cool. That's awesome. Have you ever have you ever spoken to Rog since then? Have you ever bumped into him in the locker rooms or just behind the scenes and had a quick had a quick comment to him? Yep, one and zero. Got got that one on you. <laughs> Yeah, I think I, I ran into him at the US Open a couple of years ago uh, when I was with Max. Uh, and, yeah, he so he was just arriving. And yeah, as soon as he walked in, he's just he's super present with whoever he talks to. And, I, and that's what I yeah, that's what stood out with with him. Uh, you know, he had so much going on around him. Everyone's, you know, excited to see Rogers just arrived at Flushing Meadows. Um, but he, but he was definitely locked in conversation with me, um, you know. And I remember asking him a question about his mental, um, you know, and how, you know, his mental approach to the game and who he worked with, and uh, you know, he, it just felt like he had a secret there that he didn't want to tell. Um, but yeah. it was definitely something that he worked on specifically when uh, Peter Carter passed in uh, in South Africa. Uh, in an accident over there, um, yeah, I think it was a devastating time, and it was it wasn't long after that is when his uh, career really took off. So, yeah, um, but yeah, he always has time. Always has. To, he's always. <laughs> I mean, he looks like he has so much time on the court, but off the court as well. Nathan, you came up against some big players, especially on the doubles court. Um, I'm sure none bigger than the serve of Andy Roddick. Do you mind telling us about how it was facing his serve and how difficult it was facing his serve? Yeah, well, it's, it's one of the, yeah, definitely the heaviest serve that I've ever faced. And it was on grass. It was at Surbiton. It was a challenger tournament leading into wow. Queens and Wimbledon. He was there, you know, as a practice match. He played with Jet, Robbie Ginepri, former semi-finalist of the US Open. And uh, I was playing with uh, Chris Guccione uh, and we ended up getting him in three sets. Uh, I remember he rocked up the court with two rackets. So it really was a practice outing for him. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was big for Chris and I. So uh, it was nice to get that win. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it was a, it's a difficult serve to pick. But we did break him for the match. Um, so, you know, and it, and it, was, it was nice to take that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you sort of touch on now how you made that transition from playing to coaching? Was that something that you always dreamed of doing? Was it possibly an opportunity that came up that gave you a bit of a push in the right direction? How did you yeah, make that transition from playing to coaching? Uh, it happened quite abruptly. Uh, as a player, I always said to my father, who I mentioned as a coach, um, I said I never coach, and I was very stubborn with that. 
and uh, it was uh, 2008 and I'd been plagued with injuries, a groin injury that I just couldn't shake. Uh, I had a, a daughter that was on, on her way into the world. So my wife was, uh, what was she? What is that? Uh, eight months pregnant. And Leighton, Leighton Hewitt asked me to, to come away with him. Uh, and so essentially my wife had the baby in January and a week later I was off with Leighton. And we linked up in the Bahamas. We had a, a week training there. And then over to uh, San Jose and Memphis. And knowing Leighton growing up, we have that immediate rapport. Uh, he had enormous respect for me, which was surprising. I thought I felt like I was going over to be more of a hitting partner. Uh, but it was, you know, I put the coach's hat on. I dove into that role and, and we clicked. And he uh, made two semifinals. And after that, he, he said, that's it. I, I want you with me. So it was, it was like, all right, well, you know, I have this, this newborn baby. This would be a uh, logical, logical move forward for, for myself and the family. Absolutely. So you're with Leighton for a year. Can you just, how, how challenging was that year? Um, and how, firstly, how challenging, how amazing, what was sort of the feelings that you were going through in that year with Leighton? Um, well, as I said, we just we we really clicked uh, as a team. Uh, he really fed off my energy, uh, and yeah, he was uh, he was outside a hundred or right around a hundred when we began, and uh, back into the top twenty. But we we, we were a year, we were together about a year and a half, and uh, yeah, I mean, one of the favourite memories was. Uh, uh, him being with him when he beat Federer in Halle. Uh, so he lost 15 times and, uh, yeah, and he played him in that final and it's a final I'll never forget. And, it, it, um, yeah, I'm quite emotional about it, actually. It was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, he beat him six in the third. Um, but, yeah, we really, you know, when he was out there, we just, we locked eyes and I, you know, I felt like, I felt like the energy that I brought to that box, he just, he just took on and he trusted what I had to say and it, and it worked. Um, I really thought he'd go on to win Wimbledon that year. Uh, he was primed to do it. He lost to Djokovic. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, but he played a great match and yeah, he's, you know, he's a special, special, special Australian player, uh, big heart and, you know, loves the sport and, yeah, it was a, it was a pleasure to be uh, yeah part of that journey with him. Yeah, I, I remember watching that match on the couch here at home in Melbourne. That is still it's probably one of my earliest memories watching tennis. Definitely one that will not um, that I will not forget. So you you coached Leighton for a little while, and when you look back at your career, how does that stand out with you that that time, and how do you reflect on it? Well, as I mentioned, we, you know, have a history throughout juniors. So we had that mutual respect for each other. Um, Leighton, you know, he's always very focused, very organised. Um, and, yeah, it's very professional. Um, and, you know, what, what stands out now reflecting on it is that he was the boss off the court. But when we were on the court, he gave up those reins. He, he stepped in as the student and he allowed me to coach him which I think is remarkable. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of players. Um, yeah, that, that as their tendency is when they become the employer, it's not easy to take that hat off when, uh, you know, when you're on the court. So, you know, and then as soon as that happens, the, you know, they stop listening and they stop growing, stop evolving. Um, and that's, yeah, Leighton did that extremely well. So, um, yeah, it was a pleasure to, pleasure to work with him. Uh, and, you know, energetically, he really fed off me in the box. And, um, yeah, he really had an uncanny ability, as we know, to draw off the crowd and the environment around him. And, um, yeah, that's, that's something that uh, you, you, I feel like can be learned, but it's, uh, there's an art to it. Um, and, yeah, he, he was a master. For sure. And do you still do you still stay in touch with Leighton? Have you what's the relationship like these days? Um, 
yeah, you know, the relationship's great. I mean, there will always be that mutual respect. He's, you know, he's he's a legend. And, uh, yeah, he's um, – we we haven't been in touch recently, but, um, yeah, you know, I'll be back in Australia soon. And, yeah, hopefully – he lives in Sydney now, so hopefully we get a chance to hang out again. I'd love to get out on the golf course with him. I mean, we, we played a lot in the Bahamas and – um, yeah, that was some very fond memories of, uh, of uh, yeah, he's a very good golfer. So he takes me down there. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I'd love to hang out with him again. And, uh, you know, he's has a lovely family and kids are great. He's a wonderful father. He really is. And, uh, and Beck's, Beck's amazing. Um, yeah. So yeah, to be, to spend some more time with him would be, would be great. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sure when you get back to Australia, for sure, you'll, you'll hit the golf course with him. So you finish up with Leighton. Can you fill in the gap for sort of that five to 10 year period between then and now and what you've been up to and yeah. And where your coaching has taken you. Sure. Yeah. So my wife is from Phil outside of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, about two hours from New York. And it made sense while I was traveling with Leighton, which was, you know, like 40 weeks out of the year, it made sense that she was uh, near me because, because we were based in the Bahamas. So she traveled there a little bit. Uh, and so when I finished, it was a natural transition just to go back to, to uh, Pennsylvania. And so, you know, at the time I, I really, it was challenging me. It was challenging for me to leave Leighton. Uh, but yeah, I did have a two-year-old and, uh, yeah, it was time for me to be spending a bit more time with them. So, uh, I, yeah, came back to Pennsylvania, started, uh, private coaching and I was also playing myself a little bit and winning a lot of the uh, money tournaments in the area. So I was enjoying that, you know, playing and coaching and, you know, putting into practice what I'd learned when I was with, when I was with Leighton, and as I said, I started to see the court so much clearer, uh, as well as bringing in uh, yoga and other mental techniques, uh, meditation, and yeah, I really started to go down that those rabbit holes, which just made me a better person and uh, definitely more wise. And it was really fun to put that into practice, and that's where my whole uh, theory and or concept of play awake was born. And uh, yeah, that's it's what I'm really you know super passionate about bringing the holistic approach to to the court and life and and uh, yeah it was it was born in those it was pro- so that's 2010 through 2012 uh, and then I ended up at a country club so I, I spent five years at a country club uh, at, in Westchester Pennsylvania. Amazing. So can you, you touched on play awake. I was going to ask you about that. How does, how do the techniques and the methods you use um, equip someone to be a better player on the court? Because I think it's evident that the players you've worked with, you can see a serious mental shift in the way that they approach their tennis. Um, How does it, yeah. How does it equip you to become a better player on the court? Yeah. So, so play awake is something that I'm super passionate about. and it's it's about it's a holistic approach that allows the player to bring their entire self to the court without it, it undoes any stresses and any any uh, anything that's causing anxiety off the court it's clearing those blocks uh, which allows the player to step on the court to be fearless to play with their heart to really to really show up um, without without that anxiety and 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 therefore have the ability to to play and uh yeah and and not not be focused on the score and the storyline of of making money and and everything that comes from winning tennis matches so it it allows you to play in the moment you know we use it all the time it's so cliche you know to to be in the moment but it's very hard to be in the moment when you've got stories running through your mind of what what this match means and and uh you know if i win this i will go on and to this round and and then i'll make this money and so you know and this you know my parents will respect me and my friends and my peers so it it really quiets those stories and allows the 
allows the player to to show up fully and uh, and and like I said fearlessly absolutely and it's it's evident that it's a it's it works because um I guess the latest player that you've worked with Max Purcell um I've obviously followed Max's career very closely and it's incredible just how many situations on the court he's been able to get himself out of when you look at the scoreboard. I mean, last year there was a string of matches where, you know, the average player would just have lost simply because they were in trouble on the scoreboard and Max managed to dig himself out of those holes. Player weight, you sort of mentioned how it allows you, I guess, to turn a, turn a blind eye in, in a way to the scoreboard and not have that pressure impact your game. How important can that be for a player? Obviously, Max won so many games literally just off that. How important is it? Well, we, we say that this sport is, is what, 90% men- mental. You know, a lot of players would agree with that. But I, I you know, being on tour, I look around at, at, at what players are actually doing and, and I don't really see them working on that side of the game. There is so much, so much hitting balls and so much on-court time and physical, but I, I feel like that this piece is missing with a lot of players. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's extremely important. Uh, and Max really took to it. He really dove in and, and trusted the process that, that, uh, that I bring to the table. And uh, yeah, he, he cleared a lot of mental blocks that uh, yeah would have would have would have really inhibited his um, you know growth on the court and the results on the court, but his growth as a person and and that's what I'm most proud of is him as a person. He he definitely grew from it, um, and yeah, I'm, I'm I'm super proud of him. Yeah, absolutely, and I I think you look at I guess his run last year it all started in Eastbourne and that run could have easily not eventuated if he didn't, you know, come back from a massive deficit in the first round. And, you know, it just, it's amazing to see, you know, he was on the court and he was in some difficult, tricky positions um, and the way he just navigated his way out of it. Um, do you think that is possibly the most valuable, I guess, asset to come out of, play awake is that a player on the court can literally just navigate their way out of difficult spots um, simply because they're not dwelling on it and not focusing on it so much. Yeah. As I said, you know, the, the process, he was, uh, he was able to really go through a mental process between points and at the change of ends and yeah, and that's what, uh, that's what part of the teaching is about as well. It, it is doing the off court work, and working on stresses that are happening off the court, but then also on the court, having clear mental processes to to go through. And uh, I mean, him coming to me, he always had an uncanny ability to find his way out of difficult situations. But I think the play awake process has definitely added tools to to his repertoire and, and simplified things for him mentally. Uh, yeah, so watching him in Eastbourne, watching him at the Olympics, I mean, it was... It was, uh, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, it was beautiful to watch. And, uh, yeah, I'm super proud. It's, it's, a, it's a, a pleasure to be part of his journey as well. Absolutely. And, Nathan, so you're now in the States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your year so far and your plans for the future? What's in store? Well, the future is, uh, yeah, I'm, all, I'm curious about what's going to happen next. Uh, yeah, I, unfortunately, Max and I ended. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, challenging um, to end our partnership. Um, but, you know, everything happens and has its, has its timeline. So uh, I'm here in Pennsylvania and, uh, yeah, waiting to see what happens next. I'm in loving time with the family, though, so really appreciating being with my two kids who are now 10 and 13 and, and time with my wife and her family and, and I don't know if you can see this guy behind me, but that's a uh, that's a body uh, combat bag. Or his name's Bob. Bob, uh, what is it? Uh, body. It's he's called Bob. Uh, body opponent bag. Anyway, it's for kickboxing, and my 13 year old's really into that. And so I'm working with her on that and learning a few a uh, few things myself. So um, yeah, I'm just you know I'm open to to whatever comes. Uh, there is something on the horizon to do with uh, mental health, 
which is uh, a Madison Keys event out in uh, in Iowa. On uh, it's called the Court of Dreams. Uh, there was a segment last year during Wimbledon. Uh, essentially, a a guy uh, named Michael Kuhn created a court in the middle of middle of a cornfield. So we've you know we've heard of the Field of Dreams, I assume. Yeah, uh, the baseball movie. So sure. yeah, he had the idea to create this court back in 2003, uh, and yeah, he's invited college teams and and uh, yeah, uh, you know, tons of players since since 2003. Unfortunately, his son committed suicide in 2016 after they'd visited Wimbledon together, and so obviously that was extremely uh, you know. You know shocking for him and uh but his plan with his son was to to lay actual wimbledon grass which is called rye grass i believe uh so after this happened he 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 decided to lay the court himself and dedicated it to his son alex and so i'm headed out there in the middle of july uh for this charity event and obviously and play awake is also all about you know it's about the, the person it's about the human first before the athlete and uh so yeah that's really close to my heart and yeah to be with you know be, be with madison and, and uh, take part in such an event is is exciting for me and uh yeah we'll, we'll see what comes from that and um yeah but i'm just uh yeah here to support any anyone uh, that needs assistance and yeah I'm, uh, yeah curious. it sounds like it sounds like an incredible story um and i'd be keen you got to send some photos through when you're there i'd be keen to see the court um it sounds amazing well, you can look it up online the documentaries there uh court of dreams uh wimbledon and uh wow. yeah it's like a 10 minute video and it's uh yeah pretty cool what this guy did Nathan, so just looking at your recent coaching, Chris, we spoke about, you know, you worked with Max and the relationship now has ended in terms of a coaching relationship. Just sort of touching on that, we spoke uh, on the first serve about going back about 12 months ago now and Max, the, Max's trajectory has been amazing. It's been steady growth. It's, it's been rapid in patches, but just steady um, for the most part of it. Um, and you flagged on the show that you think he he has the potential to be a top 20 player in the world. Personally, I, I completely agree with you. I think he's got weapons and, and a massive variety in his game. How difficult was it sort of, I guess, stopping working with him when, you know, you've got such a connection and, you know, you both really believe in, in the, I guess, the, the, the mission and the end goal? Um, yeah, it was, it, it was challenging. I was, um, you know, it was a bit of a shock. I thought we were on, on a wonderful path and, uh, yeah, he was ticking all the boxes. Uh, yeah. So it was a bit of a shame for it to end. Uh, I, you know, I've only recently got over it. I think I, you know, I'd have to admit that it, it took, you know, a couple of months to, to really reflect on, you know, on, on the surprise of that happening. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, he, I, as I've said, he, you know, I, I wish him, I wish him the best. I, I, and I really, he's, he's a wonderful kid. He's got a beautiful heart and he, um, yeah, has so many tools to work with. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, yeah, I just think if, you know, he continues to work on himself, uh, that's such a big piece as the off court work. Uh, and I just think at times it, 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 it lacks the focus from a lot of players uh, and that's when they get lost. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he certainly puts in the hard work on the court and, and, and you know, doing the extra training off the court. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just ticking those mental boxes. I'd just love to see him continue to do that. Uh, he, has the, he does have the tools now, so hopefully he, he takes what we worked on and he continues using that in his training and as his growth, uh, you know, for his growth as a player and a, uh, and a person. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm here if he ever needs me and, um, 
Yeah, I, you know, I, as as I've said, the, the play awake and the mental stuff is what I think makes can make the biggest difference and can be the keys that can unlock all the physical uh, physical stuff that goes on out there. For sure. And I guess, you know, you speak so fondly of Max and you guys had an amazing relationship and, you know, we saw it from just the outside looking in, you know, his growth was immense um, with when you were working with him and, you know, he'd come out on court one week and I, I was watching him, I watched most of his matches last year and it was really cool to see how each tournament you could see he was just adding things to his game. Um, I guess we haven't really touched on, I guess, why the relationship ended, but is there any chance of you guys, do you think, rekindling it going forward and, and working together in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm open to whatever the future holds and I'll, you know, feel into it, whether it works for me and the family. Obviously, there's a lot of travelling involved, uh, you know, with a professional player, uh, which, which is, yeah, which is challenging for the family. But, uh, you know, I, I love working with players that really want to, that are really uh, wanting to work and, and, and you know, are open uh, and yeah, and so, yeah, I think we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, but, yeah, I'm definitely open to it. Uh, we did so much work with his serve and volley game, uh, you know, and a lot of movement forward. So hopefully he continues to do that. I think that's just a, it, it, it's his X factor. Um, it's where he can, yeah, really unsettle a lot of opponents. So the grass court season right now really suits him. And, you know, I saw he had some good results in uh, in Surbiton. He got through qualies and won a few rounds. So, uh, yeah, it would yeah, it'd, it'd be nice to see him do well at Wimbledon. I know there's no points. So when I saw that, I was a little bit, you know, <laughs> almost frustrated for him. I'm sure he's frustrated with that you know you know I, you know he loves the grass and it's his shot to really really attack the the rankings but uh yeah Wimbledon has no points so I'm sure he's disappointed with that but uh you know it's it's the way it's you know it's just the way the chips have fallen so you just you know just needs to accept that and and move on and and just you know as we say just keep getting one day better uh, that's what Agassi said to me. That's one of his mottos, just one day better. And, uh, you know, I like that one. So That's a, that's a great motto. That, and that, mm. can, that can sort of relate to any aspect of life um, and especially in professional sport. Nathan, going forward, have you – so obviously in the States at the moment, you said you plan on coming back to Australia soon. Do you have any, any goals, I guess, for the, the short-term future and – do you plan on possibly coaching again on the tour if an opportunity presents itself? Uh, yeah, no, nothing at the moment. I'm, you know, heading to Europe for a couple of weeks with the family. Uh, just going to spend some time traveling around Europe as a tourist, which I, you know, I haven't had a chance to do before. And you know, I was always, you know, airports, hotels, and and tennis courts. So you know, now we can do a bit of sightseeing. The, my my kids are thirteen and ten, so they're at good ages to you know go on a trip to Europe together. Uh, and then after that, it, it, I'm still open uh, and still open to see what what the future presents. And uh, I, I I actually did step back out on court the other day with one of a very promising young girl from uh, from Pennsylvania. Uh, she's like number one in the state. And um, yeah, she's she, you know she's she's really into what I'm to working on with her, and uh, yeah, she's uh, super open. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, yeah, the family at this stage has has flights back in September, so we'll probably head back to Australia then, and, and then just see what uh, presents. Amazing, amazing, Nathan. Just before I let you go, it's sort of a two part question, but. What advice would you give to an aspiring tennis player and how could a junior or aspiring tennis player, not even a junior, but at any age get involved with Play Awake? Because I, I think it's a it's an amazing, um, I guess, method, if you want to call it that, that you've created. And for those who want to get involved, how, how can they? Sure. Um yeah, so I guess the advice I'd give an aspiring player is is to ask questions, is to find find a mentor 
uh, and just yeah, ask as many questions as possible. Just and and reach out to more than one mentor. If and 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 one mentor might come along and you spend a period with them, and then and then that that relationship ends for whatever reason, and then and then another one. Keep keep seeking mentors. So I think that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I would hit home on. Uh, and as far as play awake, uh, you can reach out to me at uh, healytennis.com.au, and I'll be more than willing to uh, yeah answer any questions and take players through processes. Uh, I do do uh, online coaching, so that is an option for for players that are looking for uh, that mental edge. And uh, yeah, and as I said, I I mean I I appreciate tennis results. But I'm more in love with the art form of the game and and uh, the play. You know, that's where the play came from, is, is playing with your eyes open, uh, you know, and you're ultimately your heart open rather than, uh, you know, the competitive battlefield and, you know, I'm going to rip this guy's heart out or girl's heart out. It's, uh, yeah, I, 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 I experienced it, that it doesn't need to be like that. It's a meditation uh, and yeah, we would go through all these meditative processes that on the other side, uh, yeah, really, really, uh, yeah, can let your tools shine and you can play your best tennis. No, I absolutely love it. I love it. I'm going to we'll attach all the handles on Instagram so people can get in touch. Um, Nathan, thank you so much for opening up. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear about what happens in the future and we're definitely going to catch up again soon so i'm keen to to get an update on what's going on in your life but nathan really appreciate you joining me um it's been an absolute pleasure we got there in the end with zoom we had a few issues but no it's been it's been awesome and i really appreciate you joining me thanks jed yeah me too and appreciate chatting and reminiscing about the tour and you know all the fond memories i have of uh you know being out there and and uh, yeah, all the all the gifts that I've been given, I, I feel like I've lived lived a very blessed life. Absolutely. Well, we're definitely going to do it again. We're going to do a part two where we touch on play awake, um, and we're going to dive real deep into that. Thanks, Jed. Yeah, I look forward to that as well. Well, that's all we've got for you today. Thank you so much to Nathan Healy for joining me today on Aussies Only. We will definitely be doing a part two with Nathan where we dive deep into Play Awake. So stay tuned for that. Be sure to head back and listen to any previous editions of the show. We've got plenty of guests uh, on Aussies Only, so be sure to listen in to any previous editions of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Aussies Only. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win it. G'day, Mike Hussey here. Get on board Australia's best fantasy cricket game, KFC Supercoach BBL. It's fun, free, and easy to play. Play today at supercoach.com.au. T's and C's apply. New South Wales authorisation number TP slash 01005.